Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew 28, 1 to 10. If you don't have them, uh, there is a Bible on the pew back in front of you. Feel free to grab that one. Uh, you can um, take it with you. If you don't have a Bible at all, take it with you. It's yours. It's our gift to you. I have run that by zero people, but I'm assuming it's going to be okay. I think it's all going to be fine. Just take it. We won't screen you on the way out or anything like that. Matthew 28, 1 to 10. Look with me now as we read. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as, I, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took, the, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we have read your word. We, we know what it says, but we pray that you move it to our hearts, that you bring the impact to us, that you convict us where we need to be convicted. You train us in righteousness. You move us toward the good works that you have prepared for us to do. We pray that this passage that we read, you would give us understanding to open our eyes and our mind and our hearts, that we may see what it says, that we may know it in our minds. We may come to know you, the God behind it, and we, by knowing all of those things, may be motivated in our hearts to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. At several points in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus encounters would-be followers, people that come up to him and say that they, they would want to follow him and be a part of his ministry. They express some sort of desire to be a part of what he's doing. And the reason that they're coming to him is because they obviously see these miraculous works that he's doing, and they want to be a part of it. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow the one who is raising the dead, who is healing the sick, who is casting out demons, He's, he's essentially going through his ministry and he's proving to everyone around him that he ain't from around here. And they are realizing that. And they want to be a part of what he's doing. And so people are coming to him and they're expressing their desire to follow him. But, but what's particularly important to pay attention to is that some of them are rejected. They express their desire to follow him and some of them are told in one way or another no. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is going through the towns around the Sea of Galilee, mostly in the town of Capernaum, and he's healing all of these, these people. He heals a, a, a centurion's son from a distance. Remember, he just tells him, your son's going to be fine, and the centurion goes back home and, and his son is healed. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. In fact, in chapters 8 and 9, there are nine miracles that run across those two chapters. 
And they're told to us in groups of three. So it's three miracles, then a break, then three miracles, then a break, and then three miracles and a break. And in between each group where there is a break, there is a command from Jesus to the people that are following Him, that are actually literally following walking along with Him, to follow Him. Which seems weird because they are following Him, but he's, His command is, follow me. Really and truly, follow me. And it's at this point where a scribe comes up to him in chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, and it says this, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So he's confessing his desire to follow him. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you realize when, you, when I say follow me and when you say you want to follow me, do you realize what it means? that you're going to be homeless. That's what it means. Then just another verse later, another, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, mind you, these are people who are physically following him. They're professors of Jesus already. They, they are agreeing with what he's doing, and they're looking at it and going, man, that, that's amazing. I want to follow you. The scribe is following closely as he's traveling through, as Jesus is doing these miracles. And the other one that follows right after him is identified as another of the disciples. That is, in addition to the scribe. The scribe is a disciple, and this guy is another disciple. They are literally followers of Jesus, but there's also some unwillingness, it seems, to become actual followers of Jesus. In other words, they're happy about the miracles and they're gathered around Him because they want to see more of what He's doing, but they seem hesitant about actually doing what it's going to take to become an actual follower of Christ. That is, leaving home and bed or leaving ailing parents. That may be, perhaps, a bridge too far for them. Jesus seems to know what it is that's their hang-up. But the point is that not everyone that likes the idea of Jesus is a true follower of Jesus. There's plenty of people in our world that love the idea of Jesus. But when it comes to being an actual follower of Jesus, it seems to be a bridge too far. As it turns out, the cost for following Jesus is actually pretty steep. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 34-39, do, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the cost for following Jesus is actually incredibly steep. 
And what we find throughout this gospel and other gospels is that there's plenty of people who like the idea of Jesus, but when it comes to that whole idea of taking up the cross, when it comes to the idea of setting father against son or mother against daughter or whatever, family against family, when it comes to that whole notion, it seems to be a bridge too far. I don't want to set my siblings against me. I don't want to set my family against me. We're about to come upon Thanksgiving and Christmas, and the last thing we want is awkward conversations around the dinner table. Right? You're told, don't bring up politics or religion. And the reason is because we just want to keep the peace. Right? We don't all agree. We don't see it eye to eye. No one wants to hear your opinion. So if with that in our minds, what we're predisposed to is keeping the peace, what do we make of Jesus saying here, That's not the reason I've came. I've come. I've come to set family member against family member. Meaning that following me, being my disciple, is going to mean awkward conversations around the dinner table. It's going to mean rejected invitations. It's going to mean your family hates you. How do you like that? So then in the next section, which starts in chapter 11... Everyone's trying to decide what category Jesus falls in. What do I do with this guy? Here he is doing some undeniable things. He's clearly doing some things where he's healing the sick and and all kinds of crazy things that I really have a very difficult time explaining. And especially just explaining away. So everybody's got to put him in a category. And so we get to chapter 11 and everyone's trying to do something with him. The chief priests, as we saw last week, they're, they're deciding... We're going to explain some of these things away, and we're going to try to kill him. That's the only thing that we can do with Jesus, is we've certainly got to put him to death. Then we even see John the Baptist, who's in prison, send his emissaries on to Jesus and ask him, Are you the one, or should we expect another? Is it really you? Are, I'm just not sure of what to make of you. But who is it that we find is dead set that this is the Christ? What group of people is it that is willing to be true disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30, he says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So so I want you to track with me what's been happening in the Gospel of Matthew up until this point that we're at in our text this morning. First of all, there's a clear point that Matthew is is making to you, the reader. You have to do something with Jesus. You have to do something with Him. Not everybody's going to do the same thing, but you have to do something with Him. The scribes, the Pharisees, they want to explain Him away and, and want to kill Him. John is unsure of what to make of him. Some of the crowd is unsure of what to make of him. 
Others proclaim him as Lord, but the point is they're seeing undeniable acts in front of them and they have to do something with him. This story that we're reading of the resurrection didn't happen in some dark corner somewhere. It is not this report that I'm reading. It didn't come from a guy who knew a guy who told a guy who heard from a guy somewhere. The claims that are here in the Scriptures about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they come from eyewitnesses. They don't come from any, like any other religion comes to you. This isn't a story that happened to a guy in a dark corner and then he came out of it and told a bunch of people like you would find in Mormonism or Islam. What's reported to you didn't happen in a dark corner. This is a host of eyewitnesses that are watching him perform miracles, that are watching him raised from the dead, and every single one of them are telling you, you have to do something with this. You have to explain this some way. Some want to follow him to see more cool tricks. Some want to explain what he's done away as if it could be explained away. But who are the ones that we find that are real followers of Christ? It's the weary, the heavy laden. Those are the ones that come to Christ for rest. So, so the first thing is you, you have to do something with Jesus. But, but second, half-hearted association with Jesus won't cut it. There's no category in Scripture for half-hearted association with Jesus. There's only one way that a person will enter the kingdom of heaven, and that is by complete and total dependence on Christ for all of your righteousness. You understand that it's not just something that you have to say. Your association with Jesus is not just a limerick you repeat, or a prayer that you just have to say. That's not how one gains association with Jesus. He describes it a multitude of ways throughout this gospel. It's the kind of people you are. It's a person who has been cut to the very heart with the words of the gospel, with the good news of the resurrection who understands its implication and describes them as poor in spirit, as meek, as those who mourn over their own sin and over the sin of the world around them, who are weary and heavy laden, who have childlike dependence on Him. And on and on it goes, several ways he describes them throughout this gospel. But we've come to the last chapter of the gospel. I know you thought we would never make it here. It's been three and a half some years in the making, almost four years in the making, since we started the Gospel of Matthew. We finally got to the last chapter, and it's a passage that's very familiar to all of you. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And as Matthew closes out this Gospel, there is a question that is going to be implicit in the text. It's coming to you, the reader. What do you do with Jesus? How do you understand it? What bearing does his resurrection place on your life? First, I want you to see in this text the response of the guards. So it's Sunday morning. 
We see that in the first four verses there. It's Sunday morning and, and it's approaching dawn and Matthew names there in the text two of the group of women that went on. We know from the, the rest of the Gospels it was more than just two women. Matthew just isolates these two because they were specifically the ones that witnessed the burial of Christ just a few passages before. And so whether it obviously wasn't only these two, but clearly they directed all the women where to go to find his burial place. And so... Um, in all likelihood, remember, they have no clue that there are guards standing out front of the tomb, and they have no clue that the tomb has been sealed. Mark tells us that on their way, they were discussing how they're going to roll the stone back. Like, you know, we, we really should have thought about that before we left. How are we going to get this stone back? Having no idea that there's actually a group of guards and that the rock has been sealed to the, the bigger rock behind it that Jesus is buried in. So they're probably going to have a pretty difficult time uh, getting into the tomb since it was sealed on Saturday. They probably have no idea about this. But all of that is beside the point. Why? Because an angel descends from heaven and actually takes care of all the details for them. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven and he causes this earthquake and he scares the living daylights out of the guards that are standing there watching the tomb. And so he says, it, Matthew describes his appearance. He was glowing like lightning, and his clothes were shocking white. And he rolls back the stone, and he sits on it. Now, what's important to notice about all of that is that first, he's rolling the stone back to show the ladies that Jesus is gone. He's not rolling the stone back to let Jesus out. He's rolling the stone back to show, Je to show the ladies that Jesus is already gone. Second, it's important because it's at that point that everything for the guards changes. The guards are the ones guarding the dead body of Jesus. They're keeping watch outside of the tomb in the dead of night so that nobody comes along and steals Jesus' body. And they're in complete control. Until they weren't. If you notice in verse 4, it tells us, For fear of him, that is the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now Matthew's choice of words is obviously intentional. He's dealing with the previously dead man, Jesus, and the living men who are keeping guard over the dead man, Jesus, are standing outside of the tomb in complete control until all of a sudden things change. The earthquake happened, the angel descended from heaven, and the, the dead man, Jesus, became the live man, Christ, and the living men who were guarding the dead man became, like themselves, dead men. Right? That's a tremendous reversal that's taking place in the text. But they're so struck with fear that they just pass out right there. Have you ever been that level of afraid? They just are struck with fear to their very core and they just pass out right there. But do you notice what happens when the ladies get close to the tomb? They get close to the tomb and what does the angel tell them? Do not be afraid. In fact, that's the first time that they're going to hear, do not be afraid. They're going to be told later by the resurrected Christ himself, do not be afraid. Do they tell the guards, do not be afraid? No. The guards are not so fortunate. They should be very, very afraid. 
Their perceived control over the situation changes in the twinkling of an eye. As fast as lightning can strike the ground, an angel appears and essentially notifies the world that the tomb you've been guarding is empty. The power dynamics have changed in the twinkling of an eye. It's no longer Jesus who is like a dead man or who is a dead man, but it's the previously powerful. But now I want you to look at the response of the women, how they approach this tomb. Look in verses 5 to 8. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So the women have arrived at the tomb and the angel who has already relieved the guards of their duty has rolled the stone away and he speaks to them telling them not to be afraid. And he invites them into the tomb to look at the place where he was laying. They're given a command then to go and tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee as Jesus had told them previously he would do, and they leave, it says, with fear and great joy to run to tell his disciples. Now, in the other Gospels, there is a lot more time spent on all the happenings on with Jesus' resurrection. How they went, who they told, which ladies were there, what angels were speaking to them along the way to kind of guide them. You'll notice that Matthew shrinks all of those details down into just a Precious few little verses. Now, is that how you would write a story about a guy who rose from the dead? I mean, honestly, is that how you would do it? If you witnessed someone rising from the dead, and you were going to tell everybody about it, would it be just a few verses for you? Probably not. Books upon books you would fill talking about all of the details of the resurrection, making sure to get every single detail squeezed in that you could possibly think of. But you have to remember, that hasn't been Matthew's goal since the beginning of this book. What's been his goal? He told you in the first chapter. His goal has been to convince you that this Jesus is king over all the created world, and he has saved his people from their sins. In fact, how is he going to end this gospel? He's going to end the gospel with the words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's going to, he started the book telling you Jesus is king, and he's coming to save. He's going to end the book by telling you he has all the authority in heaven and on earth given to him. In other words, he's king. So he opens the book with he's king, he ends the book with he's king. What do you think he's trying to convince you in the middle? That he's king. That's his point. That's been his point since the very beginning of the book. And as I've mentioned over the last few weeks, the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event that has happened in human history. And all four Gospels are going to be on the exact same page with the fact that Jesus really died. That he was dead. That he was dead dead. That he was absolutely, unequivocally, positively dead. 
You could poke him and he wouldn't move. He wouldn't respond in any way. There was no breath being breathed in and breathed out. He was absolutely and totally dead. You get it? He was dead. He sat in the tomb until Sunday morning and early Sunday morning, his dead body was transformed. It was made new. It walked out of the tomb. His soul, which had left his body when he died, reunited with his previously dead body, now made new, and he walked out of the grave. Now the reason that this is such a pivotal event is because we're all dead men walking. That's the reason changes everything. Every single person in this room is a dead man walking. Do you understand this? You're going to die. You are absolutely one day going to die. I was always told there are two things that are certain in this world. You know them. Death and taxes. You've been told the same thing, I see. So Matthew has raised the point at the beginning of the book, Jesus is king over everything. And you might be saying, well, okay. So he's, so he's king over everything, but... I mean, he still gets old and dies like the rest of us, right? Death and taxes. He so overwhelmingly overcame death that his actual dead body got up from the grave made new. Now, obviously it was transformed because why? He walked right out of the grave. In John, he appears to the disciples when they're in a closed room. He comes in. Well, was he a ghost? People might ask. No, he had a physical body. How do we know that? Because in the tomb that the angel invites the women in to witness, he's showing them that where his body once was, it is no longer there. Meaning that body was made new and got up and walked out. So is he a ghost? No. When I say he's king over everything, he is so king over everything that the laws of physics become mere suggestions to him. You following with me? Now that's a kind of reality that we hear whisperings about or we see screamed on the pages of the gospel that we don't have any experience of. We can't imagine what that would be like to have a body with, with which the laws of physics bend around your mere existence. We don't know what that's like. But that's the kind of body that Jesus gets up with. His old body is resurrected from the dead and made new. But do you understand what Matthew is doing here? He's telling you that the king has risen from the dead. That the grave has no authority over him. See, all kings on the earth have to bend to the will of the grave. They're all going to die. Not this king. This king, the grave bends to his will. See what he's doing? He's turning everything on its head. And his herald of the news of his resurrection is first this angel, whose name is Hark, by the way. It's Hark, the herald angel. No? Come on. Well, if the king has risen from the dead, then this is good news, right? 
Aren't we looking at this as good news? Isn't this the center of the good news? Jesus rose from the dead. It's the very middle of the good news. It's good news then. Well, depends on who you are. Depends on who you are as to whether or not it's good news. If you're one that's appointed to make sure the dead stays dead, like these guards, it's not good news. Your one job, you had one job to do, keep that dead body in the tomb. And look, you were guarding an empty tomb for who knows how long. So if you're appointed to make sure that there is no resurrection, then you need to have fear struck in your heart. And, and if you see that the dead person you were guarding has been raised from the dead, then it might strike so much fear in your heart that you become like dead men yourself. Or maybe that you wish you were dead. So the announcement from the angel of coming down and rolling back the stone for these guards is tantamount to telling them that the enemy is coming. Just picture it for a second. Picture a world where everyone is at peace. There's harmony everywhere, in totality. Everyone lives in harmony with each other. Everyone's happy. There's no anger. There's no bitterness. There's no pain. There's no cancer. There's no sickness. There's no death of any kind. Imagine that kind of world. And then imagine one day an invading army comes in that goes by the name of death. It comes in and it conquers the land and it kills people by the thousand. And those that are left over become slaves. They have chains put around their necks. They're laboring day and night without rest. This is how you're destined to live, and eventually you die this way. You die with a chain around your neck. You've essentially dug your own grave. All day long, you can hear the ticking clock in your chest. The only moment it stops is when you drop dead in your grave. Just imagine that transition. Now imagine you're standing there, and you're shackled, by death, doing your work, being beaten by your taskmaster, death. And an angel of light, whose appearance is like lightning, and whose clothes are as white as snow, comes over the hillside, and he proclaims to you that the king has defeated death. It's over. Death is no more. He has defeated it. What does this news bring to all those who labor and are heavy laden under the chains of death. What does it do for you? It tells you that overcoming death is a possibility. I had no idea that that's what, that was possible. What does it mean for those who are standing in their grave? Well, for these women who are the first to witness the resurrected Jesus, you notice it says that they were afraid or they're told fear not. They, they left with fear and great joy. I can promise you that their fear was qualitatively different than the fear of the guards standing outside the tomb. I promise you it was different than the guardians of death. The news of His resurrection 
practically slays the guardian of death. But for these women who are heavy laden with the burden of death, and they feel it ever, ever so closely now, knowing that Jesus himself has died, they feel death even probably more palpably than they ever have before. These women who are heavy laden, their fear is accompanied with what? Cardiac arrest? No! With joy! With great joy! Knowing that death has been overcome. And what's the result of their joy? What, what does it say here? What is the result of their, their joy? Well, on their way, they actually encounter the resurrected king. They meet him in person. And what, what does it say their response is? What, what does it say there? What does it say is their response? They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Do you know how you take hold of someone's feet? You have to lay down on the ground to take hold of someone's feet. Did they become like dead women? Well, they're on the ground just like the guards are. No. They're worshiping him. Our English word, worship, is a, is a good word to describe what we're doing. We, we introduce it when we come into the worship service every Sunday that we're coming here to ascribe worth to God. That's literally what the word worship means. It means worth-ship. You're coming to ascribe worth, proclaiming worth to God. That's the idea of what's communicated in our word worship. We're coming to say something. We're coming to proclaim something about God. It's a good word. But the idea communicated with the Greek word for worship is more about your posture than it is what you say. The actual definition of the Greek word that's used here for worship is this. I'm going to put it up on the screen. To express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Sounds familiar in the Gospel of Matthew? To fall down and worship. To do obeisance to. Prostrate oneself before do reverence to, welcome respectfully. The root of the word that Matthew uses here to tell you what the ladies did, the root of that word means to kiss. So what's happening here is the word picture that's communicated by the Greek word for worship conveys someone who is paying homage to a king by prostrating themselves, falling on their feet, and kissing the one that's standing before them. Because the news of the resurrection has changed everything about their lives. You understand. He's not just the king. He's their king. He's theirs. He's the one they want to worship. But then the question that has to be driven from this text is, is He yours? Is He yours? Do you respond to Jesus like these women? Listen. Truly believing in Jesus 
results in worship. Do you understand that? Truly believing and following Jesus results in worship. And the picture that you need to have in your mind of worship is confessing your complete and total dependence on Him, your submission to Him, falling down on your face before Him as you would submit to a king and kissing His feet. The picture of worship is so opposite of so many that sit in our worship services today. Though We are often lethargic. We're often dull-hearted. We don't want to think or be challenged. We don't want to sing slow. I want to sing fast. I want music that peps me up. We don't like silence. God forbid we sit in silence confessing sin. How many things in the worship service have to be in accordance with your liking before you realize that you're worshiping yourself, not God? So often, our worship services are about our emotions. Does the worship service draw me in? Does it stimulate my heart? Does, does the preaching keep my attention? Is it the right time? Is it too long? Is it too short? Does it hold me constantly? Is the person up there that's speaking, are they a good speaker? Is it polished? Is it well done? What about the people on stage? Are they singing perfectly? Is everything flowing just right in the worship service? Look at what Matthew is laying out here for you. These women see the resurrected Christ and they fall on their face. They grab His feet and they kiss Him. Does that sound like they're concerned about their attention span? They're so overcome with joy. So much that passes for Christian worship in this country is basically aimed as, as a rock concert at your emotions. Hoping to get you stimulated to the point of joy so that you like being there. So much of it is built around your attraction to the church. How can we get more people in? Let's do things that attract them. The way you get people in is you tell them the good news of the resurrection. And the ones that want to fall on their face and kiss the feet of Jesus, come. They run. You can't keep them away. And when the word is open, and when the word is sung, and when the word is prayed, they become more hungry for it. Not bored by it. But what has all that done? Just ask yourself, what has all of that seeker sensitivity in our worship service done for actual devotion to Christ? What has it done? What has it created? It's created churches so anemic that the threat of death terrifies us to our very core. We cannot imagine 
Anything worse than someone telling you if you go outside and you shake hands with your neighbor, you will die. I could get in real trouble here. But I think it might be okay. I'm not saying the coronavirus was nothing at all. It was a very real illness that killed a lot of people. That's true. But I would say, there is a point where many Christians saw that they were abstracted from the church completely. And when it came to concern over their soul versus concern over their body, they chose their body. You understand that the disciples met the resurrected Christ. And because they did, they became incredibly risky. Not risk-averse. They became incredibly risky. They were told, shut up or we'll kill you. And they said, kill us. Throughout history, it has made Christians incredibly risky. Christians have been on the front lines of every disease throughout history. But you have been told for hundreds of years now, this is all about you. It's all about your feelings and your emotions. It's not about bowing down and kissing the feet of the one that made you and the one that saved you. It's not about his body edifying one another. It's about you. And what did it create? Created churches so anemic. They couldn't risk their own lives for the benefit of others. I know I'm probably going to get emails about that, and that's okay. Understand that there are plenty of people, the Gospels are littered with them, who are convinced that they are following Jesus. They might even be convinced that they're standing up for Him. They're standing on the principles of doctrine. They're fighting for Him. And they'll fight anybody that comes close. And it's a testimony to the fact that they're not actually fighting for Christ. They're at war with people who are Christians. But they are convinced that they are fighting for Christ. Now they like the therapy Jesus who gives them comfort, who gives them a pick-me-up. They like the provider Jesus who feeds them when they're hungry or makes them feel better when they're sick. But the thought of King Jesus who is sovereign over their whole lives, who demands that they bow down and kiss His feet, nauseates them. That's not a follower of Jesus. You can see in this text what a follower of Jesus is. What seizes them when he appears? Is it fear, trepidation, and cardiac arrest? Or is it fear and joy at the good news of the resurrection? The question is, how do you respond to the resurrection? What do you do with the resurrection? Understand, half-hearted association will not do 
that He is either King over every aspect of your life or He is your enemy. There is no in-between. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know so much of what has been said could potentially be taken in ways that I don't mean. And I pray that you would protect that. That anything that I've said would be used as edification, perhaps correction, and encouragement. That we as a body would take it that way. More than anything, we would be enthralled with the news of the resurrection of Jesus. That would fuel our passion, that would fuel our hopes, our desires, our evangelism. That as we tell the world about Jesus, that the good news of the resurrection would be on our hearts and on our minds. That it would alleviate us with all concern about our physical bodies. We would realize we're so blessed to be included in the body of Christ, to know that resurrection is coming for us. That the good news of the gospel, of the resurrection of Jesus, would fill us with hope. That it would lead us to repentance. That we would see there in Jesus the one who came to die for our sins and rose. That we too might be resurrected and have life in His name. I pray that you would give us that kind of confidence and boldness. Make us a body earnestly desiring to sing praises to your name for who you are and what you have done for us through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.